good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Is it cold enough outside for you? Yep. On today's program, I'll check in with the founder and artistic director of the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival, which kicks off later this week. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to preview some of the theatrical productions they're most looking forward to seeing this winter. Later in the show, I'll catch up with filmmaker and musician Harula Rose to talk about her new movie, and I'll revisit my conversation with a local photographer who captured candid images of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during his trips to Chicago. All that's coming up. Thanks for tuning in for some arts and culture on this cold Chicago morning. Some of the world's most talented puppet artists will be in Chicago for the next two weeks. The 6th Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival is set to get underway on Thursday, January 18th. Over 100 puppet-related activities created by artists from 10 countries will take place over the course of the festival's 11 days. We had between 13 and 14,000 people attend the performance of the festival last year, so... This is Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival founder and artistic director Blair Thomas. I recently caught up with the award-winning puppet artist to talk about his approach to programming North America's biggest puppet festival. The change since the pandemic is that now we are an annual festival, and so uh, I feel like I'm in a greater dialogue with the companies and artists that are out there with work as, as well as the Chicago's performing arts season. And then it also just creates more latitude towards shaping a festival, you know, in, in terms of uh, of the, the, t- the getting a diversity of work on the stage aesthetically as well as just uh, 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 who is on the stage performing what kind of stuff. These are all things that I'm interested in showing breadth of work in the festival. Will certain themes or ideas emerge as you start to put different companies together? For that- sure, there's, there's a lot of artists who are addressing uh, the, the issue of climate change at large um, or just environmental awareness. Um, and so I'm finding that almost each year we have shows that that's, the, that's like the, the principal theme that's, that's created the work. Um, this year, the company from Norway and New York, uh, um, that is doing the Animalia trilogy, uh, Waka Waka Productions. It has these uh, three pieces that are kind of a futuristic look at the world, um, led by uh, a fox who's who is uh, has organized a rebellion against the humans who have mucked up the world, and 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 he's, so he's leading an animal revolution to save the planet. And uh, so th- this becomes a kind of a, a sci-fi story in in, in, any, in many ways, but but uh, um, an adventure story as well. Uh, and the trilogy is, is three works that are around this theme with that central character of the fox. So that's kind of an exciting thing to, to be able to have that kind of, <clears throat> to sort of see that um, connected in terms of 
thematic work within the festival itself. But other than that, you know, I don't, I'm not programming so specifically, mostly looking for uh, diverse, diversity of aesthetics and, and cultures, and then people as well on, on the stage, you know, for creating a breath for, the, for a festival. So when you say aesthetics, are you looking for like different styles of puppetry? Yeah, exactly. Like um, the the signature of contemporary puppetry today is that it it it's an amalgam of styles, and uh, the the human performer is on stage with a, multiple types of puppetry, as well as video projection, live music, recorded sound, all these things kind of blending together to create a, 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 a kind of a, a language of puppet theater. And um, so if someone who hasn't been going to puppetry recently would sort of think, oh, it's a puppet festival, there's probably a marionette show and there's a shadow puppet show and these kinds of delineations. And that's just not the case of what's going on. It's a, it's a, a much more eclectic and, and interesting visual theater that's, that's being uh, that's drawing from traditional practices. Um, uh, you could see a show like Song of the North, which is a large-scale shadow puppet show uh, that's telling a Persian story, an ancient Persian story from the Shabbat and it's performed on a movie screen size, uh, a, a shadow puppet screen that, that the, the projection, uh, the light that creates the shadow is not a traditional flame or single light, but it's a film projector and the in the the director is a originally a filmmaker himself but now he's incorporating live performance of human silhouette with traditional puppets on sticks that are two-dimensional and his filmmaking just right there you can see there's a real mixture of styles that pr- produces a very dynamic aesthetic and i was looking at the uh, the countries represented in this year's festival so uh, there'll be some chicago companies uh, participating and some North American companies, but then I think, well, are there nine countries that'll be represented? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. One company that we're really excited about because they're, uh, uh, they haven't performed much in the, in the U.S. at all. They're coming from Indonesia, and there's a lot of very traditional puppetry that, that Indonesia is known for, but this company is doing uh, uh, their own original version of work that's uh, that's really beautiful and, and exciting and uh, Paper Moon Puppet Theater, and uh, they're, they're coming with, with a show are like um, another company that Companies that are that haven't been to Chicago and some haven't been to the U.S. Even Grupa Coincidencia from Poland has a show called Krabat that they've made in collaboration with this, this uh, these German artists. Um, and seeing a company from from Eastern Europe is another experience because uh, the the aesthetic of Eastern Europe grew out of a very different period of incubation in the 20th century than your the Western culture. And uh, and so that's that in itself is a really interesting thing to be able to see as well. So I would imagine that some of these companies probably don't come stateside too often. So this is a, like a, <laughs> a unique opportunity to, to see a lot of these performances. Oh, for sure. You know, uh, we're actually one of the most difficult countries for an artist to visit. The, there are many gatekeepers that are set up by our, our government that make it yeah, increasingly more difficult for presenting organizations to be able to afford to bring in these international artists and to, to make it through all the hoops. I tell companies that we're working with, I'm like, okay, we're going to run through this visa process with you, and this is serious. When they say they need nine reviews 
of your show from professional venues, they mean nine. They don't mean six. It's the big bad wolf. If you don't get nine, you're out. You know, and it's the it's really and that's just like one example of many hoops that need to be jumped through. And we've had companies that are really exciting, and they just that are like they just don't have that kind of administration pulled together, and we couldn't get them into the country. You know, it's like I'm sorry, we can't do it. You know, it's like there are a lot of things that make international presenting very difficult. You know, so we're becoming culturally isolated in the U.S. because uh, you know you can see it. Like, how many times do you see presenters being able to to bring in international artists? It's it's not a lot going on, and particularly in Chicago, and much actually much in the U.S. So we recognize that that this is. I mean, it's crucial. It's it's fundamental to what we're doing, and so we have we we have to work really concertedly and and hard on that part of it to make sure we can get these artists in the country. And then there's there's some practical things like since the pandemic, the um, uh, one of the big cost raising uh, situations is shipping. Um, we can just consider that all the shipping costs to move stuff over has doubled. It's just if it, that's kind of common. So these kinds of things, it's it's interesting just to see how these world things affect ultimately what we're trying to do with a puppet festival. <laughs> you would think, it's, you know, on some level, puppetry is. I mean, we're an art form that's in general, we're having a good time what we're doing. It's, you know, puppetry is fun. When you try to do something at this level, you we have to interact with all these forces that are at play. And, and we have to we have to really double down as an arts organization to pull it off. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking with Blair Thomas, the founder and artistic director of the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival, which gets underway on January 18th and continues through January 28th. This year, the festival has expanded to even more venues. It's true. We've got, we continue to, to have a, a more join us. I mean, one of the things that's increasing this for us this year is that we offer one performance that tours around the city to different venues for each performance. And this year, that's the company from Kenya doing Tears by the River. And it's a family show. It's a small show, but it plays in 13 different uh, locations in the, during the 11 days of the festival. So um, we just have a small production team to be able to transport it around, and it's got to have flexibility to be in a community hall one day and the next day to be in the theater with lights. You know, it's just it, it has a great variance in it. But puppetry is a form that that is very uh, it's it's used to this itinerant presentation. Like that's where like almost every puppeteer has that. At their, at their root, and they understand like how to, to make things uh, portable in that way. So anyway, that's in the past, the free neighborhood tour has only been for four or five days, and now it's it's uh, every day. And so that, all of a sudden, we just had to find many more little venues for that. So that kind of thing, for sure. And then the, uh, the Fine Arts Building is a home base of sorts for the festival? We have our offices here. I'm, I'm there now, and we also have uh, our, our puppet studio where we fabricate puppets for... Um, other productions. Uh, at the same time, we're doing this festival. We're uh, making a, a, a few puppet things for Mary Zimmerman's uh, Magic Flute at the Goodman Theater that, <laughs> that starts rehearsals the first day of our festival. But anyway, uh, so we kind of we have a puppet shop here. Um, but during the festival, uh, we turn our shop into a, a little gallery space in a cafe. Uh, and so we have a couple exhibits, the puppets from La Liga Elastico Teatro, 
um, have these beautiful wolf puppets that, that they'll do a performance of on Saturday the 20th down at the National Museum of Mexican Art. But other than that day, they're on display here at the Fine Arts Building, along with another display of puppets and drawings and paintings by local puppeteer Michael Montenegro. His production with Theater Y of Little Carl will be presented at the Biograph Theater. And then there's also some other uh, displays of some of the puppeteers' designs. So there's a little cafe, that, that uh, Spoken Bird Cafe uh, from the 18th Street comes up and has a pop-up cafe in here, so you can get a good cup of espresso and some nice hot soup. And uh, other than that, we, down on the first floor of the Studebaker Theater, which is the big theater in the Fine Arts Building, as we have the first weekend, the Song of the North I talked about, uh, plays three times um, the first weekend. And the second weekend, we we're making a collaboration with Chicago Opera Theater to do a contemporary opera that's directed by puppeteer Basil Twist. So Basil Twist was in our last year festival. He's, a, he's very much one of our, our, our um, most interesting puppeteers working in the U.S. today. And uh, a lot of beautiful work. And uh, this is a, a, a new opera for uh, 12 Voices and Two Percussion by the Chinese-American composer whose name is Wang Ro. In Chicago Opera Theater, and we are are, are presenting that uh, in the Studebaker main stage. Um, additionally, there's a, a space, a small theater in, in the Fine Arts Building where we have artist panel discussions, and there's uh, there there are four U.S. puppet scholars who have, have published books this year from Rutledge Press on puppetry, on contemporary puppetry, and so they're talking about the work. So there's you can see there's a breadth of like. Uh, engaging in the ideas of puppetry through discussion, through artists talking about the work and uh, scholars talking about work from display, of you know, puppetry on display in the gallery setting to live performance. Uh, in, in many ways, the Fine Arts Building acts as our hub to contain all those things and for our audiences to see a performance or come to one of these other events. Do you have a goal as far as what audiences take away from the festival? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the larger goal of our organization is to advance the art of puppetry, to, to create a, a place for it to thrive. I was a puppeteer myself for three decades in this town, and uh, it's an uphill battle for for artists before, in the performing arts in our country. You know, I, 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 I had a difficult time raising money, a difficult time finding opportunities to perform, I had a lot of, of things that, that came my way, but I recognize that, that we need to build a, a greater infrastructure for that art form, you know, for, for artists like myself to contribute to it. And for me, the, the logic is there is world-class puppetry that is excellent, and people who are interested in the performing arts, who are interested in culture at large, will... Uh, can see it. They can they can see the evidence when they see this work. But it it needs it needs to be put in front of them. So the festival is designed to like I'm just like put the excellent work in front of the Chicago audiences and they'll just want more. I I know and that will start to feed the cycle where uh, will artists in Chicago will start to make more. And we have we have programs that we're doing right now. Puppet Lab is one of our principal ones where we're helping Chicago artists start to develop their techniques and puppetry and their their own work and then just starting to be a hub for the for the work at large as well as just making the chicago performing arts scene more rich and diverse blair thanks so much for making time to talk with me oh yes bye
by, by all means, and uh, uh, don't be afraid of the cold. Come on out this <laughs> January. <laughs> That's Blair Thomas. He's the founder and artistic director of the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival. It starts on January 18th and continues through Sunday, January 28th. Go to chicagopuppetfest.org for a complete schedule and more information. And you are listening to the Arts Section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. Sometimes there's a bit of a post-holiday hangover in the performing arts sector as audiences find their way back to the theater. But that doesn't mean there aren't things to see. Lots of productions will be opening between now and when temps get a little warmer. And as a bonus, Chicago Theater Week is set to take place February 8th through the 18th. We'll talk about that a little later. First, the critics are going to highlight some of the productions they're most looking forward to seeing over the next few months. And Carrie, we'll start with you. And I know you want to talk about two festivals, including one I just previewed. Yes, January seems to be a kind of informal festival month in Chicago because we all know January weather is the best time to be getting out and about and feeling festive. Uh, I have two to recommend. The first is a long-running Filet of Solo Festival, which started at the old Live Bait Theater and has been at Lifeline Theater in Rogers Park for several years now. And it is a celebration of storytelling, solo performance. It is running January through January 22nd. And one of the things I think is interesting is that it's both focusing in recent years on solo performers, but also on collectives. So there are storytelling collectives that develop work from LGBTQ points of view, or um, migrant uh, community points of view, the disability community. So there's, it's really quite impossible to cite, you know, <laughs> who all is there. It's a, it's a wealth of experiences, comedic, some, you know, some serious, um, but always a, you know, always a fun thing. And the tickets are for individual performances are only twelve dollars, so that's that's not a big, you know, bite out of your post-holiday budget. The other festival is a little bit newer but just as important, and that's uh, the Chicago International Puppet Theater Festival, which has which will be running through from the 18th to January 28th. And it's taking place at several different venues around um, around town, including, happily, I think there's three or four shows that are going to be happening at the Biograph Theater, the longtime home of Victory Gardens, which has been shuttered for live performances, as far as we can tell, <laughs> for the last you know 18 months or so. So it's, it'll be nice to see some life coming back there. Uh, but again, and it, the, the puppet festival has, you know, works for families, works that are more adult, um, all, puppetry in all its various incarnations and forms. I brought a friend last year to the opening night who hadn't really seen a lot of this kind of puppet theater, and she became hooked instantly. And I think anybody you know, who who goes to it will also see just the, the magic and appeal of this wonderful festival. My first choice for the season, and Gary, I assume you were about to ask me, but uh, <laughs> my first choice for the for the season is for those folks who love the classic musicals, and this is Cole Porter's great Anything Goes, a nineteen mid-1930s musical about stowaways on board a ship going across the Atlantic, Anything Goes, being produced by Porchlight Music Theater, 
beginning previews on January 18th and continuing its run through February 25th. Uh, Anything Goes has such delightful songs as Friendship and Blow, Gabriel Blow, Great Standards of Words and Music by Cole Porter, lighthearted stuff with lots of tap dancing and uh, a fun time. Anything Goes, classic American musical theater, porchlight music theater, January 18th to March 25th. And mine is also musical, but a little bit newer. In a very intriguing choice for Chicago Shakespeare Theater, they are presenting Illinois. It is based on the acclaimed uh, album by Sufjan Stevens, with a story by Justin Peck, who also directs and choreographs, and Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Jackie Sibley's Drury. So it's sort of looking at this song cycle and creating uh, an inside look at the state's people and places. Um, but I'm really intrigued to see how they're going to be taking this album this and turning it into a fully three-dimensional experience. It's got a tremendous pedigree. Um, this also marks, I think, a continuing trend for Chicago Shakespeare. Uh, just last season, they produced The Notebook uh, on stage, and I think, as you've noted, Jonathan, uh, they're... Their uh, co-production of Six, bringing that to North America, has been, you know, paying dividends, probably literally for them. I'm sure they have high hopes for, for this show as well, but, uh, you know, there's a nice local appeal to it, and uh, that will be running at uh, Chicago Shakespeare from January 28th through February 18th. So not a long run. Uh, I'm sure that uh, it's going to be a pretty popular show, so I would suggest getting your, getting your requests for tickets in soon. Uh, Illinois. We should emphasize the end, not Illinois, but Illinois. Illinois. <laughs> the way they, they pronounce it. Like, they, they're know, spelling it with the E, so it's, you know, right. there, there's a reason for us to pronounce it that right. way, I should point indeed, out. Indeed. <laughs> uh, my next choice is a classic, Mother Courage and Her Children, the great 20th century classic by the German playwright Bertolt Brecht. It is being done by the tiny, wonderful Trapdoor Theater, and uh, it... Uh, opens or uh, begins previews on January 19th and continues through February 24th. Now, whether you are anti-capitalist, anti-war, or perhaps both, you will find a message uh, to your liking in Mother Courage and Her Children, uh, very much a, a leftist, politically leftist kind of work, but also long one of the most intriguing and highly theatrical stage pieces of the 20th century presented uh, with songs. Uh, Mother Courage and Her Children by Bertolt Brecht, the director, someone I've always liked and haven't uh, seen much of for several years now, is Max Truax, who always does innovative work. So Mother Courage and Her Children and Her Children at Trapdoor Theater is one of my recommendations. Um, one of and my next recommendation is something that that feels you know ra- rather timely, but is actually a, a show that was slated for the Writers Theater season some time ago. This is the band's visit, the multiple Tony Award-winning musical with music and lyrics by David Yazbek, book by Itamar Moses, based on the uh, the Israeli independent film that came out several years ago. So you might think that a, a musical about relations between an Egyptian police band and the residents of a small town in Israel might be ripe for political tension. I think what's remarkable about this show is that it's not really political at all. Um, It's about this band that gets stranded overnight and the connections they make with the people and and, and the way that those connections 
are fostered through story, through song, through their through their common humanity. Um, I quite loved this show when I saw it in New York. It had a very too brief, I think, touring production right before the shutdown. This is, I believe, the first regional production in Chicago. It's at Writers Theater, directed by Z. Alakan. Music supervision by longtime musical director uh, around town, Andre Bela Simon. I'm, I've been looking forward to seeing this in a smaller regional production ever since I saw it on Broadway. So uh, I definitely will be, I will be there for the band's visit at Writers Theater, again, running February 8th through March 17th. I've been glad. And I will be right there with you, <laughs> uh, Carrie. I, I agree. This is one of the most heartfelt and beautiful and deeply human uh, uh, musicals I have ever seen. It's a, a, a lovely sweetheart to, to big-heartedness, to generosity of spirit, and to the commonality of human condition wherever you find it. Um, the band's visit certainly would be on my list if it wasn't on your list already. <laughs> my next choice most definitely is political, and that's Richard III being done at Chicago Shakespeare Theater uh, beginning February 2nd and continuing through March 3rd. So it's a relatively short run for Chicago Shakespeare, just uh, just uh, uh, one month, really. And this is Shakespeare's play about one of the nastiest, meanest, cruelest people ever to wear the crown of England, Richard III, the man who murdered the little princess in the tower and usurped the throne. Of course, he didn't actually do any of that, as history has proven, but it's a wonderful play and one of Shakespeare's best. It also marks the debut production of the new artistic director at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, Edward Hall. He has directed before at Chicago Shakespeare some years ago, but now he is uh, in charge as artistic director, and he's rolled out a high-concept performance with a woman in the title role, and uh, yeah, even more than that, a woman who is, uh, 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 I don't know what the PC term is these days, differently abled. Would that be correct, Carrie, do you think? I think you can say uh, with a disability. I'm not really yes. sure. Oh, but yes. 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 And uh, so Richard III at Chicago Shakespeare Theater, February 2nd to March 3rd. And uh, my next selection is uh, Notes from the Field, which is taking place at Timeline Theater. This is by Anna DeVera Smith, who is one of the foremost documentary theater creators in, in, American, in, in American drama over the last 30 years at least, uh, known for Fires in the Mirror, which was based on uh, interviews she did with people from the Crown Heights uh, riot in, riot, race riots in Brooklyn. Uh, uh, she also did LA, uh, Twilight in Los Angeles about the aftermath of the Rodney King uh, the Rodney King riots and the aftermath. This one's taking a little bit more of a personal approach, I think, uh, to look at a social issue rather than this, these larger upheavals. It's a piece uh, that is looking at those caught in America's school-to-prison pipeline. Uh, so it uses verbatim dialogue pulled from, I think, more than 250 real accounts from students, faculty, prisoners, activists, politicians, to give us this idea of what is going on with students who then, for whatever reason, and I think the answer might be racism, uh, are falling out of uh, systems that are supposed to protect them into systems that are punitive. Um, I think it's just three actors um, in this one, directed by Michael Burke, who has uh, been really somebody who's been on my radar for the last few years, 
He directed a wonderful revival of blues for an Alabama Sky at Remy Bumpo this last fall. So I'm quite looking forward to Notes from the Field by Anna Vera Smith, and that will be running at Timeline Theater January 31st through March 24th. Well, that's in its own way. It's a little bit of contemporary American history, a little window on Mm -hmm. contemporary America. My next choice is a older piece of American history, a window. Uh, I think most people today know that uh, our uh, uh, third president, Thomas Jefferson, uh, after his uh, wife died, he had a long-term relationship with a uh, young woman who was enslaved and on his estate, Sally Hemings, and had several children by her, children that the white Jefferson heirs uh, did not acknowledge for close to two centuries, but now this is all well known. So this is a play called The Reclamation of Madison Hemings. Madison Hemings being one of the children of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. And this play is set in post-Civil War Virginia, 1866, when Madison Hemings returns to the estate where he was born and raised, Monticello, Jefferson's estate in Virginia, Monticello, and Madison Hemings returns for the first time to confront some of the realities about his parentage and uh, the circumstances of his life and birth. The reclamation of Madison Hemings is being staged by American Blues Theater in their uh, 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 new permanent home in the North Center neighborhood. Uh, begins previews on February 16th and continues through March 24th, so mid-February to the end of March. It is a new play, Chicago premiere, written by former Chicagoan Charles Smith, now a distinguished playwright and a playwriting professor in Ohio, written by Charles Smith and directed by Chuck Smith, not to be confused, two separate individuals, <laughs> right. but Chuck Smith, a longtime associate artist at the Goodman Theater, one of Chicago's longest-serving and most distinguished directors. So I'm looking forward to seeing the reclamation of Madison Hemings at American Blues Theater. Yeah, and that's a beautiful new venue for American Blues, as I think we've talked about as well. So that's it's a nice, nice uh, way to experience their new their new home as well as this new work. I also have a new piece, but it's at the Goodman Theater. Um, this is Dana Delaney uh, is starring in the world premiere of Highway Patrol. Um, it's a thriller that sort of sounds very meta. Uh, it's a, based on a true story about an incident that happened while Delaney was appearing in uh, Body of Proof. They asked her to promote the, her network, ABC, asked her to promote the show on Twitter. And in the play, uh, Cam, a 13-year-old fan, as they say, in a desperate medical situation, captures the actor's attention on Twitter and sweeps her into this intense, around-the-clock online friendship. But when Cam starts, I'm just reading this because it sounds very mind-bending, starts receiving messages from beyond. She is thrust into a world where unexpected revelations raise the question of how far we go to love and be loved. So I'm not exactly sure what's going to be happening in this play, (laughs) but it is a world premiere. It's co-created with Jen Silverman, who is uh, an up-and-coming playwright. Well, I think she's already kind of arrived, but one of the playwrights that I've been certainly paying attention to over recent years. And it's, they, they don't actually say she's the, they say she arranges and curates the text of the play from the actual digital archives that Dana Delaney had of these exchanges over Twitter. So it sounds very 21st century, um, and I am looking forward to seeing that. This play, Highway Patrol, will be making its world premiere January 20th through February 28th at the Goodman Theater. 
it does indeed sound interesting. But so does my last choice. Carrie, what do you get if you take three women in their 70s and a young teenage surfboard instructor? What do you get? Um, the Golden Girls Drown? <laughs> I don't know. No, you get Wipeouts. You get Wipeouts. <laughs> You get Wipeout, which is the name of the new play, world premiere being done by Rivendell Theater, one of our favorite theaters, uh, in the Edgewater neighborhood, uh, mm-hmm. opening uh, March 17th, sorry, February, February 17th, and running to March 30th, February 17th to March 30th. Wipeout, when three women in their 70s decide to take surfing lessons, and uh, and there is a, a, a young teenage surfboard instructor who instructs them all. This is at Rivendell. Uh, This is part of an interesting program called the the Rolling World Premiere, Mm -hmm. where three theaters around the country all can claim to stage the world premiere of a play within the same season. Uh, This is a program of the National New Play Network. Some of you may have heard of it, but probably most of you haven't. It's about 25 years old now, the National New Play Network, and I must confess that uh, I was part of the group of individuals who established it and came up with this idea of the Rolling World premiere. Uh, And, you know, that and $5.25 will get you a grande at Starbucks. Uh, In any case, Wipeout world premiere. It sounds like it's going to be an interesting play, probably a comedy with some serious overtones about the process of aging and maybe ageism. Wipeout, Rivendell Theater, February 17th to March 30th. And my final selection is at Northlight Theater. Jonathan, you and I have talked a few times, I think particularly in the last year or so, about the welcome growth of plays by uh, Southwest Asian and North African playwrights on Chicago stages. My last selection is in that in that vein. It's Sylvia Curry's play Selling Kabul, which is at Northlight. It involves a, a man who once served as an interpreter for the U.S. military in Afghanistan, and when the Americans have withdrawn, he spends his days hiding because he is now a target of the Taliban, and uh, a life event happens that has him wondering whether he should stay concealed or risk his life. Um, this is directed by Hamid Dagani, who is very well known in Iran, has been an artistic fellow at Northlight. I've not seen him as a director before, but he quite impressed me about a year ago in a play called Andy Warhol in Iran, in which, which he performed in. So um, so this is, yeah, again, something that maybe is a little bit more topical, um, but again, part of a really wonderful upswelling of attention to plays from that region on Chicago stages. And that is running at Northlight Theater from the 25th of January through the 25th of February. And then we wanted to wrap up with a reminder that Chicago Theater Week is coming up uh, February 8th through the 18th, so additional incentives to go out to your local theater. Indeed, additional uh, additional incentives in usually two forms. One, many, many discounted theater tickets, uh, up to 50% discounts, for productions from the big downtown theaters to small neighborhood theaters to theaters out in your suburb. Uh, and the other is even some free events and performances. And this covers everything from musicals to dramas to comedies to family-friendly theater. And, you know, listeners have heard Carrie and I talk 
uh, you know, in their year-end wrap-up about the the pressure, the duress that Chicago's performing, live performing arts are still under. Audiences still have not returned to pre-pandemic uh, levels, and our theater companies are not-for-profit performing arts institutions are hurting at the box office, hurting with their fundraising. This is an easy and money-saving way for everyone to re-engage with live theater in Chicago, to take advantage of some of the many, many, the scores of offerings uh, part of Chicago Theater Week. The dates are February 8th to February 18th, so it's actually uh, nearly two weeks, uh, stretched over uh, a week and two weekends. And all the details, all the details can be found online at chicagoplays.com. All right. Well, looking forward to seeing some of the shows you guys talked about. Carrie and Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome. welcome. I'm Gary Zydek, and this is the Arts Section. Expressing creativity has never been a challenge for Chicago native Harula Rose. Whether it's writing and performing music or making films, Rose is constantly creating. These days she calls L.A. home, but her roots are firmly entrenched in the Midwest. She grew up in the Chicago area and earned her B.A. and M.A. at the University of Chicago. Her new film, All Happy Families, will be coming out later this year. It officially premiered at the Chicago International Film Festival a few months ago. Rose co-wrote and directed the project. The dramedy features an impressive cast of recognizable names and faces, including How I Met Your Mother's Josh Radner, I Love You Man's Rob Hubble, and character actor Becky Ann Baker. The project received a boost when Academy Award nominee and Chicago-area native Michael Shannon signed on as executive producer. The movie explores the dynamics of a Midwest family dealing with some contemporary challenges. Roy and Sue Landry are the parents of two adult sons who are each facing unique turning points in their respective lives. Graham, played by Radner, is an aspiring writer and actor whose career and life are stuck in neutral, while his brother, Will, has found success as an actor on a popular network television series but is facing some mounting problems in his personal life. The family comes together to work on renovating a Chicago property that's for rent and end up confronting some of the issues they've been avoiding. All Happy Families is Rose's second full-length feature film. Her first, 2019's Once Upon a River, garnered critical praise on the festival circuit. I caught up with Rose ahead of the premiere of Once Upon a River back in 2019, and then again after the premiere of All Happy Families. Was it a different experience making this new film compared to what it was like a few years ago, making Once Upon a River? Once Upon a River, we, um, I think, it's funny, drama actually is easier in some ways because, especially when you're editing it, and that had the landscape as such a character, it was almost more flexible to figure out how to structure and time things out. And Kennedy, it was her first time doing a film, so it was just a different experience. It was lovely. And, and this one was more dialogue-based and performance-based. And you couldn't really be as flexible because things build on each other. You know, it was like A happens and B happens. So that was different for sure. Uh, made it easier in a lot of ways. But working with actors that have such 
a dynamic experience in their careers. A lot of it, the movie could have gone many directions. It could have gone more funny or more dramatic. And so editing it, writing that line tonally of it being lighthearted enough and not going totally to the dark side was what the challenge was in, in making it. Rose came up with the idea for what turned into All Happy Families while collaborating with Chicago-based actor Coburn Goss, who was in her first film. As we were working together with, with the team on those scenes, I just had this instinct that he would be a great writer, just how he was handling dialogue and how we were communicating. And I don't know, just one day I said, we should try writing something together. And then he was, he was like, okay. And then the pandemic allowed us this space to really do it. Rose and Goss finished the script, and then Michael Shannon got involved. Michael Shannon's support was definitely instrumental in getting the ball rolling once we had a script. And Kobe's friends with him from long ago when they did theater together and stuff. And so he sent him the script, and he liked it. And that was what set us on our way. You know, we had talked to some actors and tried to figure out our cast, but we'd had commitments and we needed the funding, and so it kind of helped us get the ball rolling. If you're just tuning in, I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm talking to filmmaker and musician Harula Rose about her new movie, All Happy Families. She says once the pieces started to fall into place, the next step was casting. Rob Hubel, I just think, is such a fantastic actor, and he's so funny, but I know he can do more serious, dramatic performance as well, so it's nice to have an opportunity for him to showcase his whole range. And Josh Radner is an old friend, actually. I had music on that show, How I Met Your Mother, that he was on for many years and the star of. And so we had become friends through that. And then, I don't know, he's just never gotten to play this exact type of role, it seems like. And, and that was fun for him. And uh, Becky Ann Baker has been a favorite of Kobe and, and myself for a long time and, and other people on the team. Like, I have really great producers, and we all just love her and thought she was perfect for it, and luckily she said yes. And um, John Ashton I knew also from Once Upon a River, and again, think he can do no wrong, so he was perfect for Roy, and, and <laughs> bring a lot of the complexity to that role, too. Um, and then Evie was a find. There was an agent at Gersh Agency who submitted Evie to, to look at, and we had a Zoom, and it was great, and uh Chandra was also someone whose work, and Antoine on Southside, both of those actors, we were, we were hoping that they would say yes, and they did. So luckily, our cast was, everyone said yes, and we were really lucky in that way, too. Um, so, so we were all very, very excited about everyone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, the cast is tremendous. I have to say, I'm a huge, like, one of my favorite shows of all time is uh, Freaks and Geeks. So Becky oh, and Baker... God, yeah. Yeah, Becky Ann Baker is just like, whenever she shows up, I'm like, yes. Like, I would do a whole show with this cast. I would love to work with them more extensively and work on these characters more. That would be the dream. Any idea of what distribution might look like for this? Oh, man, I hope we get someone awesome to get it out there for us. Ideally, in the spring, you know, that would be very cool. I would love the most amount of people to see it as possible. So we just don't know yet. We're about to start sharing it with, with distributors and stuff soon. I know the the focus, you know, is all on all happy families, but I, I did read something. So you're working on two other projects. Yeah. So there's always other stuff in different stages of early life. And there's one that there's a script and some cast and um, another one that 
we're trying to figure out the script, but there's also maybe some cast involved. And I honestly, I would like to work on a show because that would just be nice to, I, I love movies and that's the whole reason I got into this, but I think it would be fun to keep working on something consistently and go really deep on characters and, and work with Chicago team. So I, I would love to try to get this movie out there as a series. That would be kind of a dream. So we'll keep our eye out for a potential TV series. In the meantime, Rose has plenty of other things to keep her busy. When she's not making films, she's creating music. I mean, I have a whole new record I want to put out there and play shows again, and it's been a minute. I'm, I'm definitely going to do that maybe throughout the year just because, you know, again, with movies, you just never know how long something's going to take to get off the ground and then film it and then edit it. So music actually feels like a very lucky counterpart because you can do it for basically zero dollars and, and just show up somewhere and, or just feel a little more in control of your destiny, so to speak, like setting up shows or making art with friends and it doesn't cost like thousands of dollars. <laughs> right. Harula, I really enjoyed All Happy Families and I'm looking forward to, to see what you do next. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. It's nice to talk to you again. Thanks for everything, your support and, um, you know, all of this. I'm so glad you did the movie. That's Harula Rose. She's the director of the new movie All Happy Families. It should be getting a wider release later this year. I'll keep you posted. You can keep tabs of Rose's other projects on her website, harularose.com. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream. That one day, this nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. My name is Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, decades after his death. King's words still provide comfort and inspire in dark times. Your life's blueprint must be a commitment to the eternal principles of beauty, love, and justice. Don't allow anybody to pull you so low as to make you hate them. Don't allow anybody to cause you to lose your self-respect to the point that you do not struggle for justice. However young you are, you have a responsibility to seek to make your nation a better nation in which to live. You have a responsibility to seek to make life better for everybody. One of my favorite stories from the past few years is when I caught up with a local photographer responsible for some of the most candid photos of Dr. King that were ever captured. 87-year-old Bernie Kleina has spent the majority of his life fighting discrimination. For over four decades, he led the Hope Fair Housing Center in Wheaton. But before he worked to end housing discrimination in DuPage County, Kleina was on the front lines of the Civil Rights Movement. The Wheaton resident was a priest in 1965 when he was inspired to get involved in the civil rights movement after seeing footage of the violence taking place in Selma, Alabama. 
what moved me to get involved was when I saw men and women being tear gassed and beaten and trampled by horses in their attempted march from Selma to Montgomery. I felt that I just couldn't uh, continue watching it on TV and not doing anything else. And so um, I, with uh, another teacher, went down to uh, Selma, and really that uh, changed uh, my life uh, forever. I did go down there thinking that I could do something for Selma and, and the people living there, but I realized pretty quickly that Selma did more for me than I could ever do for the people living there. Right. So when you talk about what you learned in Selma, did you then bring those lessons back with you to the Chicago area and get involved in the civil rights efforts taking place here? Right. When I returned to Chicago, sometime afterwards, Dr. King came to uh, Chicago, and I uh, participated in uh, the marches and demonstrations. But I also realized that there was a lot of uh, violence against uh, Dr. King and, uh, and the marchers. And so I decided to try to document photographically what was going on. And uh, I was able to do that to some extent. And I guess the rest is history. Was photography uh, an interest of yours, or did you pick it up as a, a result of wanting to document what was going on? Well, the irony is it really wasn't an interest of mine. Uh, before I photographed uh, Dr. King and other civil rights heroes, as well as those who were trying to disrupt the marches, uh, before I did that, I only photographed family and vacations, which is why I photographed Dr. King in color, and they turn out to be now uh, some of the first color photos taken of, of Dr. King, certainly in uh, Chicago. In 1965, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. began organizing marches and events in Chicago focused specifically on fair housing. With those 65 marches and, and demonstrations that Dr. King was a part of, the focus is, was really on fair housing or what was then known as, as open housing? That's correct. When Dr. King came to uh, Chicago, his focus was on open housing, which we now call fair housing, and ending racial and economic uh, segregation. And uh, because the focus was on housing, he was treated uh, very badly. And even uh, before one of his marches in Chicago, he was hit in the head with a rock. Dr. King was part of uh, marches and demonstrations in the summer of 65 and in 66 with the, the launch of the Chicago Freedom Movement. Did things intensify in 66? Things did get intensified because Dr. King and his staff conducted tests uh, for fair housing purposes. They uh, sent in testers to real estate offices and uh, much to no one's surprise when whites went in, they were shown a number of, of options to buy. And when blacks went in, they were told nothing was available. And so it was, uh, I think, especially because of that focus on open housing that uh, there was so much violence in the neighborhood, mainly in Marquette Park and Gage Park. There were, of course, others uh, in other parts of the city. But those are the ones that I believe 
uh, were the most uh, violent. By moving north and by concerning itself with equality in housing and employment, the civil rights movement began to encounter increased resistance, the so-called white backlash. During these marches, King and other demonstrators were struck by bricks and bottles. Oh, I've been hit so many times, I'm immune to it. How do you feel about this reception, sir? Well, this is a terrible thing. I've been in many demonstrations all across the South, but I can say that I have never seen, even in Mississippi and Alabama, mobs as hostile and as hate-filled as I've seen in Chicago. But the march will go on anyway? Oh, very definitely. We can't stop the march. We've gone going on in a few minutes. You feel you're in a closed society, Dr. King, here in the southwest side of Chicago? Oh, yes. It's definitely a closed society, and we're going to make it an open society. Line up a little bit. And we feel that we have to do it this way. I marched in one of the roughest, most violent demonstrations where uh, uh, we were surrounded by uh, hundreds of, of people who uh, objected to what we were doing. They threw rocks and bottles and cherry bombs, and uh, a lot of the people in our march were hit and had to be taken to the hospital. But the marches then, and in that one in particular, and certainly the ones in Selma, in, in a way, they were almost like a religious procession. Uh, they're very disciplined, and even though while we were in those marches, it was extremely dangerous, and uh, <laughs> we were certainly hit numerous times, but we kept it up, and uh, I think because of that discipline, our message was clear, and uh, progress was made. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. We're revisiting my conversation with Wheaton-based photographer Bernie Kleina. We talked about his experiences documenting civil rights events that took place in the 60s. I'm looking at one of your photos from the summer of 66 of a march, and you can see what I think is marchers with Dr. King on the left and then a like a line of police in their cars, and then a group on the right. Now, is that group on the right the opposition, the ones that were getting violent, or were those people with you? One of my photographs show the marchers walking down, not quite the middle of the street. They were surrounded on one side by police officers and on the other side by other police officers. And then on the sidewalks, there would be uh, people that were um, throwing rocks and, and cherry bombs and, and uh, other things, whatever they could get a hold of. So it, it was a, a difficult time. I have to say that in uh, Chicago at that time, uh, the police were really not that uh, helpful or protective of Dr. King or of the other uh, marchers. The important thing for people opposing the march opposing Dr. King was that when they threw rocks that they didn't hit a police officer. If they did, then they would be beaten to the ground. But even though we were surrounded by police, it really didn't seem to stop the uh, the violence. Kleiner participated in several Chicago-area civil rights events, though he only took pictures at a handful of them, 
but the images he did capture turned out to be quite unique. Kleiner began working for the Hope Fair Housing Center in the late 60s and never really did anything with his collection of photos. It wasn't until around 2006 that he decided to turn the pictures into an exhibit. My photos on the uh, Chicago Freedom Movement, uh, many of them are at the Smithsonian Museum in uh, Washington, and uh, they and my other photos have been on exhibit in about uh, 10 different uh, museums uh, around the country because they uh, uh, tell a story uh, that uh, at least uh, many people uh, are unaware of. They found their way into a number of, of museums. Rhea Combs, photography curator of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, said that uh, my photographs really talk about a moment that has been lost in a lot of conversations around civil rights. So I'm, I'm happy that uh, my photos are helpful in people un better understanding the past. That was photographer Bernie Kleina. You can check out some of his photos of Dr. King on the artsection.org. Just search MLK or Kleina in the search box at the top, and you can learn more about Kleina at his website, bernardkleina.com. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the show's website, theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Please be careful out there. Stay warm. Don't go outside if you don't have to. Thanks for listening. And you're my good looking. So, hey, little baby, don't you cry. One of these mornings You're gonna rise up singing You're gonna hide your way home Take to the sky Dead in mammy. Dead.